All right, we're going to uh, jump right in to our series in the study of Jonah. So if you have a Bible and you want to turn, it is in the second half of the New Testament. Uh, it's after, it's kind of in the minor prophets. If you have a phone and you want to pull it up that way, we're going to look at several different chunks in Jonah chapter 1. And so it probably really would be valuable for you to have, have something in front of you where you see God's Word and kind of walk through it with us together. We'll do our best to have it on the screen so that we can read together. But uh, this is an incredible section of the Bible about one of his prophets, Jonah. Most of us think that Jonah is about a fish swallowing a man. And what we, we, we see as we read through this book, that this is a really unique book of the Bible where it's not just a prophet going to a town and declaring, you know, what's going to happen to Israel, but rather it's the story of a man and God intersecting and intercepting his life. And in Jonah, we are meant to see something of ourselves. And so we don't want to miss the forest for the fish, so to speak. We want to see what God would want to point to and put his finger at in our own lives as we look at Jonah's story. And so let's look at chapter one together. Uh, last week, we talked about how Jonah ran. This week, we're going to talk about how God pursues. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. Call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, and he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare, he went on board to go with them away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give us a thought that we may not perish. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Verse 10, then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. And then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up, hurl me into the sea, and then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, the Lord, therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. And lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah. They hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. 
And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Let's pray. Father, this is, your word of God. this is the word of God. This is your word. Uh, you sent it to Jonah. You sent it to your prophets. And you give it to us today uh, through your apostles and through the word of God. And we pray that it would be effectual in our lives as well. That it would search us. That it would call out to us. That it would bring us home to your grace and to your mercy. That it would root out sin and idolatry. And it would help us to, to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. God, we pray that Jesus would be here, that you would be preeminent, and God, that you would have first place in our souls, our hearts, and God, that we, as your people, uh, would move out with the kind of reckless love and glory that you come, at with, come towards us with. And so we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Have you, ever, have you ever come home after a long day and you just want some good news, and, and you know, sometimes it's hard to come by, like you get home you're tired and the dishwasher's busted up and, you know, you know, there's something wrong with the van. It's making a weird noise and the AC, I'm not sure about that either. And one of the kids threw a marker in the washing machine so all the clothes are messed up. You know, and it's just like one thing after the other, you can't buy a break. Well, wouldn't you know that Hebrew kings in the ancient Near East, they really wanted the same thing sometimes. And God had appointed these prophets between 700 and 800 B.C., that frankly weren't bringing very good news. Hosea and Amos were some of the worst. And so they come on the scene, and what they have is this, this really difficult task of bringing hard news to the Israelite and Judah, Judah kings. And here's one example. It's from Amos chapter 7, where the priest Amaziah goes to Jeroboam, and he says, Amos is raising a conspiracy against you in the very heart of Israel. For this is what Amos the prophet is saying, Jeroboam will die by the sword and Israel will surely go into exile away from their native land. Then Amaziah said to Amos, get out you seer, go back to the land of Judah, earn your bread there, do your prophesying there. So Amos isn't exactly what you'd call warmly received. In fact, they're like, just get out of here. He, they see him as a traitor. Uh, then there's the prophet Hosea, who goes into even more specifics about what this exile is going to look like. In Hosea chapter 11, verses 1 and 5, he says, When Israel was a child, this is God speaking, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called him, I called my, my, him by my name. But the more I called Israel, the further they went from me. Will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent this is the word of Hosea. It's not good news. The kings hear it. They're frustrated. And here's this, this background, this political and cultural, uh, spiritual climate at this time in the history of God's people. There's wars going on all around them. They're losing land to various nations around them. They feel more and more unstable and unsure of what they're supposed to do. Certain cities are being ambushed, in particular in the northern kingdom. They're looking for some good news, for some reason to have hope, and honestly, they know God isn't really too happy with them, and so they feel paralyzed to move forward into any kind of battle and to do anything. Enter in the prophet Jonah. Jonah, in 2 Kings 14, moves towards Jeroboam with this new message. He says, I don't have anything to say about the exile. God has not told me anything about that. But I want you to know that what he has told me is that if you move forward into battle, 
In the next couple of months, you'll be successful. Look at what it says in 2 Kings 14. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. But he restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet. And so here's this evil king, Jeroboam, in which Amos and Hosea have been prophesying and saying the Assyrians are coming. They're going to carry us off into exile, and it looks dark. And yet, there's this moment where God says, I'm going to be compassionate. His heart moves towards his people again. And through the prophet Jonah, he says, if you will move out in battle, you will win. And so this king says, listen, Amos, Hosea, we're tired of you. Go prophesy somewhere else. We've got Jonah now. And Jonah suddenly becomes something of a hero to the people. He becomes known for the the prophet who will talk about their military success and their hopeful, bright future and how once again they can be God's people. And so all of a sudden, these things are happening in their people for the kings, and they're saying, you know, Hosea, Amos, we'd rather not uh, because we've got Jonah now, and who needs to worry about the Assyrians? We've got him. But then we get this book of Jonah. A couple years later, Jonah hears from the word. He hears the word of the Lord again. And this is what it says in John, uh, Jonah 1, 1 and 2. And this time it's a different message, not one that Israel would expect or want to hear. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now I want you to know that this would have been the very first time that any Hebrew prophet would have ever been told to go to a foreign nation and take the word of the Lord. There were little you know, oracles here and there, but for a prophet to go was unheard of. And to go to Assyria, the enemy nation, what would all the people have thought? This is collusion. This man is a traitor. This hero of ours has suddenly, he's gotten in bed with Nineveh. And so this is crazy. And yet what we read last time is that Jonah is actually not that worried about what his countrymen think of him. He's not that worried about marching into the great city of the Assyrians, these wicked people, and being killed. He's not worried about being laughed at or mocked or jeered. What he is worried about, we find in Jonah chapter 4, is that his message will be successful, that the God of grace will offer a chance of repentance to the wicked, dirty, evil Assyrians. That's what he's most worried about. And what he's saying is, God, look at all these awful things that they have done, the threat that they are to your people. How could you ever even let them have a chance to get off the hook? If you are true and just and wise, you would know that they don't deserve another chance. And so here's what we see Jonah saying, God, you and your compassion and your grace towards people who don't deserve it, that disgusts me. And honestly, I want a God who hates the things that I hate and hates the people that I hate. And so if you are not willing to be the type of God who endorses and signs off on the things that I see as wise and and important and just, 
then I would rather have nothing to do with you. And so he runs away. And now listen, when it says that he runs, Jonah is a good theologian. He knows that he is not running away from the omnipresence of God. He can't get away from that. No one can. But he's trying to run from relationship. And so what we talked about last week is that a good introductory idea for what Jonah is all about is that Jonah is about how a man can run away from God. What is sin? Sin is any way in which the people of God run away from him. And then what is grace? Grace is how God pursues and intercepts self-destructive behavior. And so here's what we have in this book. Jonah is saying, listen, I'm out on this mission. I'm out. And I don't want anything to do with your sense of mercy and grace. You're right and wrong. And honestly, this is where we struggle too. And we talked about last week how Jonah is a mirror for us because we walk up to God and he calls us into places which don't make any sense to us. And we say, no way, this is a line in the sand. I'm not willing to go there. I'm out on the church. I'm out on the people of God. I'm not willing to offer and take this mission of grace and forgiveness to the people in my life that need it. No second chances. And so whatever it is that makes us feel good, that makes sense to me, makes me feel comfortable, that's how we run. Jonah's running. And what we learn about running from God is that it's suicidal, that it's destructive, that it never ends well. And so we're going to look at what Jonah's running, where it takes him. If you look at verse 3, we begin to see what's happening here. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and he headed for Tarshish. Now I want you to quickly remember, I think we have a map. Do we have that map? So Tarshish is absolutely as far as you could get away from Nineveh. He goes down to Joppa, and he's supposed to go over to Nineveh, but instead, in the known world, Tarshish was the furthest place away. So he hops on a boat. He wants to go in that direction. Now, in that day and age, it wasn't like there was a tight travel schedule where you could book your flight in advance. Essentially, you went down to the harbor, and whatever was available, you got on it. And so he heads down there looking for a ship that would take him to Tarshish. And it says in verse 3, he went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. Where does Jonah's sin take him? It takes him down to a ship in Joppa, or it takes him down to Joppa where he found a ship. Now, here's what I want you to know about this, a quick observation. This tells us that if we want to run from God, then whatever it is in your heart that you are looking for, you are likely to find it, okay? So if your doctor is prescribing a really strict diet of health food, but in your heart you want to eat junk, then guess what? Inevitably, you will eat the junk food. And you can surround yourself with accountability partners. But if what you really want is the illicit website, you will find it. And what Jonah is showing us here is that if you want to find a ship to Tarshish, you always will. What is it that you really want apart from God? I'm telling you that you will find it, and it will be to your destruction. But Jonah, next we see, had gone down into the inner part of the ship. So first he goes down to Joppa, then he goes down into the inner part of the ship while everybody else is above deck. Here's Jonah moving towards isolation. He's moving out of the light into the darkness because that's where sin thrives, 
in the darkness, away from people, in isolation? Who is in your life that you can share and bring things into the light with? Lastly, where he lay down, this is what it tells us, Jonah lay down and fell into a deep sleep. He went down to Joppa, he went down into the ship, he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. Now this is actually one of the most shocking parts of everything that you see in this, in this chapter because it tells us something about Jonah's heart. A couple of years ago, my Facebook page lit up with this really crazy story and the reason it was on my Facebook page was because it was about a girl that had gone to my high school. And she had sadly become a prostitute. And after several years in that industry, there were some men that who she had come back into contact with who had solicited her for sex. And she ended up killing one of those men. And that's not what makes the story crazy. What makes the story crazy is that there was a video that captured the murder on tape in a parking lot where this woman had injected this man with a lethal dose of heroin. And as he began to convulse in the parking lot and die, she casually picked up a glass of wine, stepped over his body, and began to sip the wine until he died. And the reason this story was flashing up on my Facebook page is because people were shocked at how calloused and cold this act of cold-blooded murder was in their, in their sight. It was. It was terrifying that someone could treat another human being this way. And what we see with Jonah right here is something that should be sending off all sorts of alarm bells for us about what's happening in his heart. He has just turned his back on 120,000 people, we will learn later in the story. He has just walked out on the living God, and he is not anxious about it. He is not fretting. He is not tossing and turning in his sleep. He is in the basement of a ship in such a deep sleep that when a storm comes, he can't wake up. He is calloused towards the things of God. And so right from the beginning, the first nine or ten verses of this book, we see that this, is a, this, this book is about something really new. It's a new way that we get a prophetic book in the Old Testament because it is about exposing something in the heart of one of God's people. It's about God aligning the resources and the timing and the power of heaven and earth to bring to the forefront, in full disclosure, the true affections of Jonah's heart. And by doing so, it's meant to mirror our own hearts. It's a biopsy of a sin-riddled heart. Here's a life that on the outside looks like a really successful minister of the gospel to everyone around him, but a heart on the inside full of self-righteousness and pride, and as soon as God begins to push on that, to push on the things that are core to his identity, Jonah begins to run down, down, down. He takes off. Jonah is this patriotic prophet, zealous for the nation of Israel, zealous for its political and military stability. And so as long as God's plans don't mess with that, we're good. But when he does, he runs. And that's why this book is for all of us. 
This book is for all of us because there are ways in which every single one of us in this room wraps, begins to wrap our lives around an identity that is something other than Christ. And when God puts his finger on it, we don't want to hear from him very much anymore because every one of us runs to something. You might revolve your life around being, around being a good mom or dad. You might revolve your life around your business and it being really successful. You might put your whole life into your hobby and you post about it on your social media page. It's hunting and fishing pictures and I'm super into working out, super into my body and everybody, I want everybody to see that on my page. Maybe it's I'm a Republican or I'm an American or I'm a Marine. That's my identity. I'm a military veteran. What happened to being a follower of Jesus? What happened to I'm a Christian I follow Jesus. That's my identity. I'm a follower of Christ. I profess faith. I go to heaven. But are you a follower of Jesus? Jesus said to his disciples, come follow me. Follow me. Come wrap your life around me because I am life. I am true life. And so to wrap your life around me means that you find new life. And Jonah said, God said to Jonah, go. And Jonah said no. And honestly, this could have been the end of the story. There's a way in which this really should be, like the ship could have taken off and just gone into the sea and nobody ever found out what happened to Jonah. Well, where did that guy go? He was so good for us. And then he just took off. And then the story's over and the sermon's over. That's all we have. It'd be great. The sermon series is over. And yet that's not what happens. It should happen. That's what happens when people go AWOL on the mission, when they just take off and run, they get shot. You go on the mission, you quit, you run away, it's over. You get taken out. You said no to God, story over. You abandon God, it should be over. Mission over, story over. And yet, this book is not just about sin. It's not just about the way we run. It's about grace. It's about God. It's about the way that he pursues and intersects self-destructive behavior and rescues us even when we're running full speed ahead. And so how does God's grace begin to pursue Jonah? It's wild. It's crazy. It's a storm. And so in verse 3, we see that his relentless grace begins to unfold through this language. It says, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea. So I want you to see the contrast in verse 3 and 4. Here's Jonah, as adamant as he could be, as rebellious as he could be, as defiant. And the call comes from God, and it says, but Jonah ran away. And then it says, but God. But Jonah, but God. And so it's almost beginning to beg the question right off the bat, who do you think is going to win this little tussle between God and Jonah? I think we know who's going to win, but Jonah ran. But God hurled a storm. Hurl. Hurl is that word that you think of when your kids projectile vomit in the back seat of the van. But actually, hurl in, in the Old Testament is this same word that sh- depicts uh, Saul throwing, hurling the spear at David. And so there's this velocity, there's this intentionality, and God's loving pursuit means that he's hurling a storm in Jonah's direction. Jonah is about to get stormy grace. 
We need a doctrine, a good doctrine of stormy grace. That whenever and however we run from God, it shouldn't surprise us that we get stormy grace. Now I want you to know that this is not teaching that stormy grace is the only cause of our pain. It is one of them. But there are many others. And so back to this principle. If we as Christians run to self-refuge and however we run to self-righteousness, we can expect God to begin pursuing us with stormy, stormy grace. Boat breaking apart grace. And so whatever it is that we are getting into to get away from God, expect it to get wiped out. Expect Him to take it apart piece by piece and to give you a headwind straight from heaven to stop you. But I want you to know that this is never to exact payment for your sin. Jesus has paid for your sin. Instead, when God sends stormy grace, it's to inject something into your life, to inject newness of life. And so when God sends stormy grace, it's not some kind of evidence that you are not His or that He does not care about you. Instead, it is evidence that you are His and that He does care about you. It's proof of how God is pursuing you in His sovereignty. In the winter of... Um, this, is, this is when I began to realize this. In the winter of 2012, uh, I was finishing up my third semester of seminary classes at RTS. I just gotten into it. I had um, a year and a half earlier gotten off staff with Campus Outreach and had started on staff with my previous church in Dahlonega. Our twins, I think, were three years old at the time. And so life was pretty busy and crazy. And uh, though things could look really great on the outside in my life at that point in time, I knew there was something wrong with my heart. I knew that I was not meeting with God the way that I had in the past and that I was going through the motions. I was saying yes to everything and that there was something else going on below the surface for me, that something was wrong. And I was beginning to take shortcuts in ministry. And I didn't have integrity in all the different things that I was leading and teaching. And so God began to prepare a storm for me. And I can remember that there was a particular Saturday in the winter of 2012 where uh, it was my responsibility to oversee a community service project for our church. And it was sundown to sun, uh, sun up to sundown. And so I was exhausted. And the next day on Sunday, I was filling in to preach for our lead pastor who was out. And as soon as the sermon was over, I got in the car and I drove to Atlanta to help a college friend and his wife who were on the brink of divorce. And so it was a counseling session for about three hours. And then a guy in my discipleship group, his, his mother had suddenly passed away earlier that week. And so I, I went to the funeral right after leaving the counseling appointment. And I got home that night on Sunday evening just exhausted. Got up the next morning. And the plan was to study for my seminary final, which was due that afternoon, 12 o'clock. And so instead of studying for the final, I opened it up online, and I took all my notes out, and I cheated on the seminary test. Now, it's not a good thing to cheat on a test, but if the end game is to become an ordained pastor of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the usual route is a path of integrity. And mine was missing in this particular moment. And honestly, it wasn't like this was circumstantially 
suddenly produced. The circumstances were beginning to reveal what was already in my heart, which was that I, my whole life, had run to an idol of reputation. When God first rescued me as a new believer in Christ, the thing that I brought to the altar more than anything else was my reputation. And it terrified me to leave that on the altar with God. And yet God gave me freedom through that as a new believer. And now he was putting his finger back on it again and said, this is too important to you again. And the people that you are doing ministry with, the people that you are loving, you care more about what they think of you and how you are doing in their eyes. And it is affecting the way that you relate to me. Your eyes are on, on how they think of you instead of me and loving and serving them well. And so I went to to bed that night after I'd cheated on that test, and I fell into a deep sleep, but ro- woke up really quick. And for the next four nights, God was all over me. You got to tell, pa- tell your professor. You got to tell your professor. No, I cannot tell my professor this. I'll, lo- I'll lose seminary. I'll get kicked out. I'll lose pastoral ministry. And this is what the enemy continued to say. This is what I believe to be true. And yet on the Thursday, he crushed me and made me surrender. And so I called my professor and I said, I got some hard things I want to share with you. Can I meet you at your office? And he met me with grace. And he met me with wisdom. And he spoke into my life and he said, I want you to begin to bring into the light the things that you have hidden in your heart. And in order for you to find freedom, you're going to have to bring back to God all the things that you're wrestling with. He has brought this into your life for a reason. And as I began to share with him, and I'll pack that with some of the guys in my discipleship group, what I began to realize is that six months earlier, I wanted nothing to do with ministering out of my own weakness. There is no way that my first step towards ministering to others would be out of weakness, the places where I'm weak. And yet the guys in my discipleship group said, you have this time together has never been more powerful and impactful than when you move forward to, uh, towards us like this. This is God moving into my heart with stormy grace to show me that there were places that I was not re- yet ready to do, go to in pastoral ministry. I wasn't ready, and he had to get me ready. And Jonah was not ready. He was called to go to Nineveh with a message of sin and grace, and yet he personally didn't know anything about sin and grace. And so what does God do? God gives him a mission that he cannot do, that he's going to fail at. I want you to just think about that for a minute. God might call you to do things that you will fail at. None of us want to do that. None of us want to sign up for failure. And yet that could be the very thing that he uses to show you that you are not competent to run your own life. Only he is. And so what's the application? Well, until you admit that you are not competent to run your own life, then you are not competent to run your own life. And that's where God wants to take you. God sends a killer storm to save a man's life. Is that wild? How does God pursue Jonah? Now, I want you to see this. We're going to rapid fire through these. In verse 2, God calls out to Jonah, arise and call out. And then in verse 6, Jonah is asleep and the captain comes to him and repeats the word of God, arise 
call out. So here he is, the word of God that he is supposed to take to non-believers, this non-believing captain is now bringing to him. Jonah, if you are not going to take God's word to the pagans, then I will use the pagans to bring God's word to you. And so he hears the very echo, arise, call out. How does God's grace pursue us? He sends his word. Not only that, but these sailors begin to demonstrate and enact the love of God to him. How do they do that? Through prayer. They begin to pray. They don't even really know the right person to pray to, but they begin to call out for divine help while Jonah remains silent. How else do they pursue Jonah? Sacrifice. Verse 5, they begin to hurl the cargo into the sea. Here's these sailors saying, there's something more important than our possessions. And yeah, their lives were at stake too, but they cared about the life on that ship. Jonah did not. He's in the belly of the ship asleep. With tender truth, verse 7 and 8, how does God's grace pursue Jonah? With tender truth. Now, after they cast the lots, they know who's responsible. And when they go down to him, they don't say, you idiot, you're toast, you screw this all up. What do they do instead? They begin to ask him questions. They begin to draw him out. Hey, who are you? Uh, what's your story? Where are you from? This is tender truth. This is what it looks like to move towards one another in relationships. The word, prayer, sacrifice, tender truth. How does God's grace pursue Jonah? Sacrificial love. And we see that in verse 13 because even after Jonah confesses who he is, and says, this is what's got to happen to calm this storm down. you got to throw me in the sea. You know what they say to him instead? They begin to literally fight for this man's life. It says, nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. They are fighting for him, even though he has brought all this evil and wickedness upon them, even though he could care less what happens to them. He's in the bottom of the boat asleep, calloused heart. They're moving towards him in word and deed with a picture of sacrificial love. Here's what God's saying. If you don't want to take the gospel, if you don't want to picture the gospel in word and deed to filthy people, to pagans, to non-believers, then I can move heaven and earth to show you what's in your heart. And so the stones will not remain silent. I will send my word forward through whatever and however means necessary, so that you will begin to be rescued. Do you think that this is beginning to blow away the theological categories that Jonah has so carefully put together about how God works salvation? I mean, he must have been upside down seeing what was happening here, that there are no limits to what God will do to pursue and to rescue and intercept self-destructive behavior. This is grace. God's grace alone is able to save his people. And if that weren't enough, when Jonah realizes that his life is over and he is headed into this stormy sea, right into the storm of God's wrath, it says the Lord provided. In the Hebrew, Jehovah Jireh. When we think about God's provision, do we think about it coming through a whale, through a great fish to swallow us. But in some versions, it reads this way, that God had already arranged 
for a great fish to swallow Jonah. Isn't that amazing? God had already arranged. What about this story has God not already arranged for his prophet? What's the problem? Jonah's heart is wrapped around self-righteousness. And God will do anything. And he has been arranging everything to pursue his beloved. What would happen? Jonah is thrown right into the wrath of God. What do you think would happen if you were thrown into the wrath of God? Would you die? Jonah did not die. And you won't die if you have an advocate. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. That's what 1 John says. 1 John says that Jesus is the propitiation for our sin. He's the righteous one. And a propitiation is an atoning sacrifice. It means that when Jesus goes into the pit of God's wrath, the storm of God is appeased. God's sovereign and relentless love is on full display in the person of Jesus, on the cross, thrown into the wrath of God. And that's how he saves his people. When I was in college, there was this single woman that was a part of our church who had adopted a boy uh, from a really tragic background. The boy had been abused and neglected, and it was pretty serious. At times, this little boy could be sweet and charming and delightful, but then on a dime, he would turn, and he would be full of rage, and he would be self-destructive, and he would begin to hit himself, and he would begin to bang his head against the wall, and he would be screaming and violent. He'd try to hurt himself and his mother, and he'd start hitting his head on the wall and slapping himself. And so after church one Sunday, this woman at our church invited me and some other college students to her house for lunch, and we began to witness one of these episodes, and we felt absolutely helpless. We didn't know what to do. And then there was this mom. This mom kind of just forgot about us. And this boy became her single focus. And she kind of worked her way up towards him very carefully and got a hold of him. And she pinned him to the ground as he was trying to fight back against her. And as she held him to the ground, she tenderly began to speak into his face as he was screaming at her. And, he, and she said to him, You are mine. I will never leave you. I'm not letting go. You are not going back. You belong to me. I will never let you go. You are my son. I love you. This is your home. You will stay here with me forever. And as that boy began to hear those words, through her tender mercy, he broke and he began to cry and he surrendered into her arms again. Once upon a time, Jesus was also in a boat, fast asleep, and a big storm grew up around him, and Jesus said to the storm, hush, be still. And that's what this woman was doing. She was speaking into the storm and the tempest of this little boy's life and saying, shh, hush, I've got you, you're mine, I love you. There is no better love than that, no better security than that that the God of heaven and the person of Christ would hunt you down, hold you fast, pursue you, and say, you're mine. 
I'm never letting go. This is the relentless grace of God. It is our best security, and we need to surrender to it again this morning. Amen. Let's pray. Grace, grace, God's grace. It's greater than all our sin. So we thank you this morning um, that the way that you love and pursue us is so relentless and thorough that we cannot break free even when we try our very hardest. God, thank you that the things that we would wrap our lives around that are actually self-harmful and destructive, that you would break them apart piece by piece, that even though we might run and even though we might throw our arms up in anger at you, you would pin us down and remind us of your love. And so, God, we pray that as we close this worship service and move out into your kingdom, into this community of Carrollton, that we would go empowered by that very grace and that this would be the theme of our song, that this, is, this would be the declaration of our heart, that the relentless grace of God is our only hope and you have found us. We love you. We thank you for what you're doing in our hearts and we pray that we move towards full surrender in light of Christ on the cross for us. And we pray in your name. Amen.